Thanks for tuning in to Horizon Community Church's podcast. Our hope and prayer is that wherever you are, you would be encouraged by this message and be equipped to face any challenges that come your way. More information about Horizon can be found at www.horizonweb.org. All right. Well, hey, good morning, Horizon. It's my privilege to be with you today. Tim is still in Mexico. And just to make me jealous, he sent me a little video of him on the back of a boat, actually as a yacht, and he had a fishing pole in his hand, and he was reeling in a huge mahi-mahi. I mean, this thing looked like 18 pounds, like it was a massive mahi-mahi, and uh, they got it into the ice chest, and it was still flopping around, they closed the lid, and I was jealous in my heart, I really was. Uh, But that means that Tim's gone, And I only have about a month left here on staff, so I can do whatever I want today. All right. But don't worry. No, we're not going to get, we're not going to get too crazy, but we are going to be in the Old Testament a little bit today. The title of today's sermon is Tending to the Presence of God. Tending to the Presence of God. So let me fix this real quick. I got a big cheek. Apparently it's... There we go. So recently I've had sort of a revelation around this word presence, and it's used throughout the Bible. And so this morning, I want to unpack the unique way that God has made his presence known throughout history and in Scripture. And I want to spend some time on what that might mean for us in our walk with God today. So I don't know if you got a sermon note sheet when you came in. Hopefully you did. You're going to really want one today because I'm going to blast through some scripture. We're going to cover some ground today. And you may not have time to write down all the references. Uh, It's going to be a little bit like drinking from a fire hose. Uh, But you can go back and look at those references. And if I come across a story that we kind of just bounce in and out of for a minute uh, and you you don't have a reference for that story, go back and read it in its entirety to get the the context and and really the understanding of what's going on there. But what I want to unpack today is what is the presence of God when we talk about God's presence. You see, the scriptures often speak about God's presence throughout human history. And the most common Hebrew term for the word presence is panim, panim, and it literally means face, One time I I was talking with with Lisa, actually she was talking to me, telling me about her day, and I was on my cell phone, which which that like almost never happens, right guys? And she looks at me and she says, you know, are you listening? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she goes, listen with your face, right? There's a a presence when you're face to face with someone. And so in Hebrew, that word presence, it means face. And when we read in scriptures about this panim, about God's presence, it's talking about this close, personal, face-to-face encounter with God. In uh, ancient rabbinic writings, the rabbis had another term that they coined for when God's presence dwells in a singular place, in a singular moment. And they called this term Shekinah. Shekinah. And this is a fun word to say. Everybody say Shekinah. Shekinah. Yeah, right. Good. You guys are speaking Hebrew. And so Shekinah is the full and total presence of the Almighty God made real into a singular object or place at a singular moment in time. 
And so I started to study this idea of presence, of Shekinah, and how God shows up throughout Scripture. And I found that it is everywhere. That there is a theme that runs throughout the beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible. Throughout the whole story of Scripture, God's presence plays a role in the events of mankind. Now, when this happens, we sometimes call this a narrative. Or in this case, if you were really a Bible geek, you would call it a meta-narrative. And it means like a grand story. That this theme of presence is big enough in Scripture that the entire Bible can pivot upon this idea. And so what I want to do this morning is walk us through this grand narrative of God's presence in Scripture. And to do this, I'm going to start by asking a couple basic questions to get our mind going. How old is God? And before the world was created, where did God live? Where was his presence? Well, Moses actually wrote about this in Psalm 90. He said, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so when we study God's presence, this is where we begin. That God's presence begins before the creation of time. Before the creation of anything, God was present with himself. That he has always existed. And then this progression of God's presence moves from there as God makes his presence known to man. And he moves from heaven to Eden from heaven to Eden. And so God comes out of heaven and he joins mankind in the creation of the world to be with us. Genesis 3.8 says, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And we, we know why they were hiding, right? They had disobeyed. They had ate from the tree. But don't miss what this passage teaches us about God's presence that in Eden, God walked in the garden. That God's presence was made manifest in a way that he was literally walking around. And this, the Hebrew is Yahweh Elohim, the total presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God was present and walking around with Adam like it was normal. Before sin, God's presence was not hindered from man in any way. Man and God could live together, could dwell together. And they did, in fact, live together in the garden for a time. And then consider what Adam says when he realizes that he is going to be banished from the garden. Uh, chapter 4, verse 14. Adam says to God, Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. He recognized this. I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Adam knew that the real consequence of the fall was not that he would have to work the land. Yes, that was part of it. But the real consequence was that the relationship between God and man had been severed. That God's presence would now have to take a different shape a more hidden shape, that God's presence with humanity had been disrupted by this sin. And as we followed the story of Scripture, soon we realized that violence breaks out 
And in the next chapters, we have the first murder with Cain and Abel. And eventually, there's a total depravity that leads to God flooding the world. And we see God's presence pivot again. This time from Eden to a mountain. So this comes after the Noahic flood and God sets up this plan to restore his presence with his creation. And so God calls upon Abraham to birth a a blessed people that God might be present in this nation. And through a series of events, we learn that this nation ends up enslaved in Egypt, but God raises up a leader named Moses. And Moses has this conversation with God as God is calling him to lead these people. Exodus 33, 12. Moses says to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. So Moses is worried. He's like, this is a big job. I need help. And look at God's answer. In the next, in verse 14, the Lord replies, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses says to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. So what a, what a fascinating conversation this is between Moses and God. God says, my presence will be with you. God's people are not his people apart from his presence. And Moses recognizes this truth, and he says, if your presence doesn't go with us, then don't send us at all. And so on that mountain, God meets with Moses. And when Moses comes down from these meetings with God, his face radiates light. And Moses brings these Ten Commandments, and and he provides his people with the sign of God's presence. And for a time, God's presence is revealed by a cloud by day and a fire, by night. But eventually, this traveling tabernacle, which is like a large tent, is built to house the presence of God. And so we see another pivot in God's presence away from the mountain and into a tent, the tabernacle. God has a home on earth again, even if it's a moving home. And so God moves into this tabernacle, into this singular object, the Ark of the Covenant. And it's where his presence dwells on earth at this time. His presence was was there and was so viscerally real that the Hebrews had to learn how to approach God again. For approaching the full presence of God in the wrong way was a very serious ordeal. We read in Numbers 1, 51, that whenever the tabernacle was to move, the Levites had to take it down. And whenever the tabernacle was to be set up, the Levites had to do it. And anyone else who approached was to be put to death. Having the full presence of God placed into a single physical object caused havoc. And several times, havoc broke out. Once there was a, they were transporting the, the ark, and it's, an ox slipped, and a man reached out to grab it and keep it from falling off. His name was Uzziah. He reached out, and the moment he touched the ark of the covenant, he died. Uh, another time, we read about how David, who was the second king of Israel, he loses a battle to the Philistines, and they manage to steal the ark of the covenant. And they think, oh, this will be a great idea. Let's take it back to our place, right? We read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 5. It says the Philistines capture the ark of God. 
They took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, and they carried the ark into Dagon's temple. The first time the presence of the Lord was in a temple. And there it sat besides Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Dagon was a, was a foreign god, a, an idol that the Philistines had made. So they pick up Dagon and they put him back in his place. Bad Dagon, right? But, but there's a lot of symbolism here. Dagon, this Philistine god, had fallen face down, hands forward, before the ark. It was actually doing obeisance. It was, it, was, it was paying homage and praise to the more powerful God in its midst, the Lord Almighty. Look at verse 4 and 5. It says, The following morning when they rose, there was Dagon again, fallen on the face on, his, on the ground before the ark of the Lord. This time his head and hands had been broken off and they were lying on the threshold and only his body remained. After a while, the, Phil the Philistines had no idea what to do with the ark. So they pass it around from city to city, and eventually they decide to send it back to Israel. And so they do. They put it on some, some uh, cows, and they send it back. But God's presence dwelling in this physical box had consequences. And so it, it's, this is where the presence of the Lord dwells until David comes along, and he decides that God needs an upgrade. And so this is Chronicles 17. It says, David had finally settled into his palace. They had taken the promised land. And he says to Nathan, here I am. I'm living in a house of cedar. But the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. But that night, the word of God came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up out of out of Egypt to this day. I have moved from one tent site to another, from one dwelling place to another. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their leaders whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? And then God does something cool. He flips the whole story around and he says to David, I declare to you that I will build a house for you. So David sets out to build a house for God, and God instead says, I'm going to build a house out of you, David. And David didn't know it, but out of that lineage, out of that house which God builds in David, comes the Lord Jesus Christ from David's lineage. But this desire to build the Lord a house continues and is passed on from David to his son, Solomon. And again, we see another pivot in the presence of God in our world. This time, from tent to temple. And so David's son Solomon, he does eventually build one of the most impressive temples our world will ever know in Jerusalem. And they set up this place known as the Holy of Holies, where they are going to house the Ark of the Covenant and the, the resting place of God would be in this place. And so they do this big ceremony and they bring in the Ark and it tells us about this in 1 Kings chapter 8. It says, The priest then brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to this place, to the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place. And when the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priest could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. I'm not sure why, but I just love the idea that the priest couldn't do the service because God showed up. 
There's something about that that I just, I find so cool. Uh, But we see God's presence in the form of a cloud, just like when they were being led out of Egypt. And for the next 400 years of history, God's presence would exist in a singular place on this earth, inside this temple, in this place known as the Holy of Holies. And maybe you've heard stories about the Holy of Holies because there was all these procedures established for how to enter into that place. And if it was done wrong, it could be very deadly. In fact, when the high priest went in, they would tie a rope around his ankle because if he had any unconfessed sin, he would fall over dead and they would have to pull him out because they didn't want to go in after him, right? So there's a very complicated process. And this continues onward until we get to Hosea. Now, this is in 2 Kings 17. It says, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, son of Elah, became king of Israel of Samaria, and he reigned for nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who had preceded him. And so a little Israel history for you. After Solomon, the nation of Israel is split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom with 10 tribes. They actually take the name of Israel and a southern kingdom, which is mainly just Judah and also the Benjamites. They call themselves the nation of Judah. But Judah had the temple. They had Jerusalem. They had the Holy of Holies. So the northern kingdom throughout the history of the book of Kings, they really struggle with this. They don't know how to worship God without God, without God's presence. So there's evidence of them building, building other altars in the northern kingdom where they would try to recreate God's presence and do sacrifices. It gets them into all kinds of problems, right? And eventually it hits this pinnacle with Hosea where their sinfulness and their evil just becomes too much. And 2 Kings 17 says this, that the Lord God was very angry with Israel and he removed them from his presence so that only the tribe of Judah was left. So in other words, God is saying, I am leaving the northern kingdom. I'm done with them. Their evilness has become too much. And so in 709 BC, the northern kingdom falls to Assyria from the north. And the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom are captured. And the Assyrians, they want both kingdoms. So they continue to march straight down south. They're going to take Jerusalem. They're going to take the temple. They're going to take the ark. They want it all. But there was a king in the southern kingdom named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah knew this army was coming. He knew he couldn't beat them. So he fell to his knees and he prayed. It says in 2 Kings 19, this is what happens after he prays. Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, he comes to him. He was sent word to Hezekiah and he says, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. Because you've prayed to me about Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, I have heard you. And so with armies out in front of Jerusalem, larger than he could have imagined, God shows up, 2 Kings 19. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the rest got up early in the morning, behold, all of the 185,000 were dead. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and he returned home and he lived at Nineveh. So God saves Judah. 
And they continue to follow him and they continue to to worship at the Holy of Holies. And they have other kings and they continue for another 130 years of history after the northern kingdom has fallen. And then Jeremiah tells us that over this period of time, they have lost their focus on who the object of their worship was to be. Look at this strange verse from Jeremiah 7, verse 4. Jeremiah is writing, he says, Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You see, everyone in the southern kingdom had started to think that they were invincible. Not because God was on their side, but because they had the temple. And so rather than worshiping the God whose presence was in the temple, they started to worship the temple itself. And so Jeremiah is telling us that they literally went around going, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, worshiping this place where God was. And so at 580 BC, God decides that that's enough, that he is going to remove his presence from the temple, and we have another pivot in the presence of God. This time from temple to exile. And I probably ought to explain this strange little photo up here, what's going on with this. But let me read you a verse that actually explains what this is. Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Ezekiel the prophet, he has a vision. He looks and he says, I saw beside the cherubim four wheels, and besides each wheel of the cherubim, there were wheels that sparkled like topaz. As for their appearance, the four of them looked alike, and each was like a wheel intersecting a wheel. So we have these divine wheels that he's seeing in heaven and they're like spinners. You know, if you've ever seen those rims with the wheels spinning within a wheel and they attach themselves to the throne of God. And verse 18, then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple. And if you go on to read, Ezekiel actually says, he sees the glory of God, put wheels on his throne and wheel himself out of the Holy of Holies across the desert and out to the east. And so God leaves this place of the temple. He wheels himself right out of it. And 2 Kings 25 tells us what happens, that in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, a new king, the king of Babylon, which takes place after Assyria, marches down against Jerusalem with the whole army. He encamps outside the army. He builds a siege around it. The, siege, the city was kept under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. So Assyria now, rebirth, has come back to finish the job. And this time, God lets them, shaming his own name so that he might restore holiness to his people. But even during the exile, God shows up. God shows up. One of my favorite examples of this is in the book of Daniel. These captive Jews living in a foreign land, trying to figure out how to worship God without the temple for the first time in hundreds of years. And they upset Nebuchadnezzar. And so he throws them into a giant furnace to burn and die. Daniel 3, verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar leaps to his feet in amazement and he asks his advisor, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? And they reply, certainly, your majesty. And he says, look, I see four men walking in the fire unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. 
Ah, this is so fascinating to me. How Nebuchadnezzar uses this phrase for the fourth man in the fire. It's almost prophetic because it's at this point in history that God's presence is about to pivot again. And one of the most important pivots in all of time that he might be present in our world in a new way. And God's presence pivots from this place of exile to a place of human flesh. And Matthew spells it out for us as he quotes Isaiah. He says, Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Do you see how this fits together? That the birth of Jesus is another manifestation of God's presence made real on our earth in a brand new way, in a way that the world could never have seen coming, in a way that would have blown anyone's mind, in a way that would have been almost unbelievable if you had seen him face to face, that there was this God-man walking around on the earth, the God with us. And John talks about this in his gospel as well. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Matthew says it, John says it, and finally Jesus tells us too that this is a manifestation of God's presence. In John 14, he says, if anyone loves me, He will follow my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. I will live with you. God's presence will be with you. Jesus is announcing that this new form of God's presence through the son is part of a larger process which will enable God to dwell with man again. That through Jesus, man will be able to live with God. A full restoration from the failures of Eden. And I would even say that this is the primary mission of Jesus. That he didn't just come to forgive our sins, but he came to restore the panim, the face-to-face presence between God and man. The work of Christ our Lord. But Christ dies. And he resurrects and he ascends. And with his ascension comes yet another pivot of God's presence in our world. This time from flesh to spirit. Now here's where things get interesting. Because God's presence has shifted. Jesus conquered death. He's walked out of the tomb. But where is he now? Can you go to Israel and meet him? Can you schedule a Zoom with Jesus? Can you call him on the phone? Does he have a podcast or a YouTube channel that you can subscribe to? His physical body, his physical presence is no longer on this earth. But Jesus told us that this would happen. John 16, verse 5 through 7, and don't worry if you didn't catch it. The disciples didn't either. He says, I am going to him who sent me. Jesus, we're talking, I'm returning to the Father. But none of you asks me where you're going. Rather, you're filled with grief because I've said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Because unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus tells us, I'm going to return to dad. 
I'm going back to the Father. But he promises us a new form of God's presence. And in this verse, he actually gives that presence a name. He calls him the advocate. In Greek, the word is parakletos, kind of a fun word. And it means helper. So sometimes your, your translations will say, I'm going to send you a helper. Sometimes it says counselor. But the person that Jesus is talking about here is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And the early church understood this. And that's why when Peter was preaching in the book of Acts, he says this. He says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's presence with you in this new way. Paul preached it too in Corinthians. For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Oh, I love that Paul makes this connection. See, Paul realized that we are the vessels for the Holy Spirit, that we have replaced the temple as the new house for the presence of God. I mean, think about what this means. Each of us as Christians, we are many holy of holies. The most sacred place where the presence of God dwells. And in our day, God desires to make his presence known through his people. And that's the era, that's the time that we live in now. We live in an era of spirit. But we know, church, that one more pivot's coming. A final pivot of presence, and it's a pivot from spirit to eternity. We're not here yet, okay? So don't check out on me. <laughs> we live in an era of spirit, but this pivot is coming again. Revelation 21 tells us this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people and he will dwell among them. He will live among them. They shall be his people and God himself will be with them. And again, this dwelling, this living, this is a total living with God in the fullness of his presence. A restoration from Eden now renewed into a new heaven and a new earth so that God might once again dwell in his fullness with us. And I call this crazy story the meta-narrative of God's presence, how he has come from heaven to Eden, from Eden to the tent, from the tent to the temple, from the temple to exile, from exile to flesh, from flesh to spirit, and from spirit to to eternity. God has always made ways to be present to his people. Okay, so having chewed on that, what does this mean for us? What, let's unpack some things. Well, here's some key takeaways when we think about God's presence. One, God never forced his presence upon anyone. He never forced his, his presence. Two, uh, God has never been absent from the world. Even during the wilderness, even during the exile, even during the cross, God found ways to be present with his people. And three, in the time in between Eden and eternity, God's presence has always been mediated. The fullness of God, that dwelling of God, has not been realized in its fullness because of sin in our world. We need this mediation in this in-between period. And we have to let that, that sink in and consider what that means for us as a church and as followers of God today. 
that in this era of spirit, God's presence is made real through his people. That we as followers of Jesus are the mediators of God's presence in the world. And what an awesome reality and what an amazing responsibility that is. And so let me ask this question, how do we make space for God's presence? Well, one writer, Brother Lawrence, six, he 1600s, a monk, you know, he wrote it this way. He said, our sanctification does not depend on changing our works. Instead, it depends on doing that for God's sake, what we commonly do for our own. So, tending to God's presence is about intentionality. Another author I really like, a pastor, teacher, David Fitch, he says this, we need to learn to tend to the presence of God at work within our communities. And I really like that word, tending to the presence. The same way that they would tend to the tabernacle or tend to the Holy of Holies, we must learn as the people of God to tend to God's presence within us and within our communities. See, in the garden, there was rules. Well, really, there was one rule. Don't eat from that tree, right? In the tabernacle, there were rules. In the Ark of the Covenant, there was a host of rules. And with the temple, there was rules. And we too must learn, how do we tend to God's presence in our midst? How do we let God work within us and within our communities? And so Fitch goes on and he says, this is the mission of the church. And tending to God's presence happens when we participate in the practices of being church together. He actually goes on to list seven things. And if I had seven more weeks, I would do a sermon for each one of these. Okay, but we're landing the plane. So let me, these are, these are ways that we tend to God's presence. The first is through the Lord's table, communion, right? The table is centered around the presence of Jesus. In fact, he tells us that when we take communion together, that he is present in that moment. Not figuratively, this is the literal presence of God in this moment, in this action of taking the bread. We tend to God's presence in our life. Through reconciliation, as we live out in an us versus them world, when we practice reconciliation, we demonstrate the power of God's presence to champion peace among us. When we proclaim the gospel, we practice this proclamation of announcing with hope that God is in the world that he desires for his presence to break in further around us. When we use our gifts, that God has given us all these unique gifts, we learn how to serve one another, and God's made presence in that place of service. When we are with the least of these, and by being with the least of these, we learn that this is more than just a good idea or a warm sentiment but in that very way, God makes his presence known to those who are hurting around us. I mean, think about it. Jesus told us this. He said, when you give a, a glass of water to someone who is thirsty, you give it to me. There's a manifestation of the presence of God that happens in these actions. It's the spirit of God at work in us and in our world. When we are with children, the practice of being with children shows us values of the kingdom wonder and celebration, dependence and playfulness. And children can make God's presence real in surprising ways. And when we pray, we acknowledge our submission to God, our desire to be more accessible for his purposes and a longing for more of his presence. And so all of these ways, if we look at them and we unpack them, we realize that God is with us 
when we practice out these practices of presence. And I know it's Father's Day, and so I just want to zoom in just for a few moments before I run out of here of how we can be present with children and how that can become a manifestation of the presence of God. uh, Jesus said in Matthew 18 that whoever receives a child in my name receives in me. He was telling us that, that when we're intentional with children, when we present, when we're present with the child in the work and name of Jesus, that a space can be opened up where God can work. And in that space where God in Christ not only transforms the child's life, but transforms ours as well. And I often learn as an adult that, I, that children can teach me so much more about God than I think I can teach them. I actually have a picture of this happening in real time. This is a picture of our good friend Larry Underhill, and he's tending to the presence of Jesus with some kiddos at Calaveras Big Trees State Park. He's on a 180 trip. And he's not, he's not just being with these kids. He's not just watching them as some kind of security guard, but he is manifesting the presence of God with them. And Jesus is made real in these moments. There's something supernatural happening here. And this is what happens when we learn to tend to the presence of God within us. This is what it means to be people of the Spirit. This is what it means to be church. And when we do these things, we're not just being good Christians. It's even more than than honoring God. These actions manifest God's presence in our world. Being a Christian, it's not enough to just believe the right things. We have a calling We are the new vessels by which God has chosen to empower us through the Spirit to make his presence known in the world. So my hope for you today is that you will leave this service with a fresh realization of your calling as a Christian, that the moments where we are able to tend to God's presence are just as sacred and holy as when Moses approached the burning bush When we tend to God's presence among us, it's a take off your sandals for your unholy ground kind of moment. Let me pray. Father God, may this church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, discover how to tend to the presence of God to those around us. In this era of spirit, may you be part of the holy followers of God, who help usher us into the next stage of your presence. And I pray, even as the church leaves today, that perhaps to spend time with the Father in their life, that you'll show them how to seek opportunities to tend to the presence of Christ amongst their families. May we never cease to be surprised and delighted by the presence of God in our midst. Amen. Awesome. Hey, thanks so much, guys. Have a great Father's Day. Be blessed. We'll see you.